I thus address the world through the medium of the latest wonderful invention so that my voice, like my great show, will reach future generations and be heard centuries after I have joined the great and, as I believe, happy majority. Welcome to Becoming Barnum, the journey to fame and fortune, a podcast presented by the Barnum Museum in Bridgeport, Connecticut. The Barnum Museum has a unique treasure in its collection, a 750-page copybook of letters written by Phineas Taylor Barnum when he was traveling in Europe in the 1840s, introducing his young protege, General Tom Thumb, to millions of ordinary people, as well as royalty and high society. These letters offer a unique glimpse into the life of P.T. Barnum as a husband, father, mentor, and entrepreneur. Join us as we travel back in time and learn about the real person behind the legendary P.T. Barnum through his own words. If you enjoy this episode, we would appreciate it if you would subscribe to our podcast to help our rankings and support the Barnum Museum. And now, on with the show. Imitators and followers will get poor gleanings. February of 1846 was a busy month indeed for the General Tom Thumb tour in Scotland, so there has been a lot to report on. And, once again, our episode is based on Barnum's letters from that month, February, which were found out of sequence in his copybook. Fortunately for us, these have helped fill some of the gaps in our storylines. While in Scotland, Barnum was frequently corresponding with agents and friends in London and Paris, not to mention advising his museum manager in New York. This juggling act of the entrepreneurial showman required dedication, strategic thinking, and both tact and doggedness to ensure that plans were evolving as intended, which is to say that people were doing what they were supposed to do and not behaving badly or defaulting on their obligations. One might envision P.T. Barnum at the helm of a ship, trying his hardest to keep it on course in a sea that was never calm and was often quite choppy. In this episode, we'll see how Barnum is managing, check on his projects in France, his plans for the General's exhibitions in London, and wrap up with an endearing tidbit about the eight-year-old boy's pet. Barnum's trusted friend and agent in Paris was a Monsieur Houet, who was responsible for following up on Barnum's contracts and agreements, as well as getting cost estimates for the projects he was considering. While in France, Barnum had commissioned an artist to make copies of two well-known paintings in the Louvre, ones he had chosen for their dramatic subject matter. The first was of Cain fleeing with his family after the murder of Abel. The second, a great and terrifying depiction of the biblical deluge. From the February letters, we learn that Barnum had eventually contracted with an American artist working in France, a Mr. Allen, not Hyacinth Chevalier, the art student whom he had first thought to employ, who was the nephew of his museum naturalist, Monsieur Guillaudot. We also now learn that the painting of Cain was in the Gallery of the Luxembourg, by which Barnum probably meant the gallery in the east wing of Luxembourg Palace, it may seem odd today to refer to it as a contemporary art gallery, but between 1818 and 1937, the Musée du Luxembourg was exactly that, showing the work of living artists. Mr. Allen had now finished making the copies, 
but since Barnum was not in France to view the completed paintings, he deputized Monsieur Houet to visit Mr. Allen's studio on Rue Rumfort. He instructed him, I wish you to take a proper judge with you to look at this picture, and if it is well done, according to contract, pay him the balance and have both paintings properly rolled, packed, and shipped through Mr. Draper, directed, as usual, to Mr. F. Hitchcock, American Museum, New York. If the painting is not pronounced to be well done, I hope you will not pay him more than you ought in justice to pay. Barnum had an agreement to pay Mr. Allen 1,000 francs for the two copies, but could not recall if he had already paid him 200 or 300 francs and was relying on Huey to check the document. Although Barnum had been advised by both Fortis Hitchcock and Moses Kimball that opening a picture gallery of copied works of art was not likely to be successful, he expressed interest in having one made of a large-scale painting depicting a pivotal moment in American history. However, Barnum did not think this was a job for Mr. Allen, to whom he tactfully wrote to say that his services would no longer be needed, citing Kimball's remark that the best copies in the world will not pay. Instead, Barnum proposed to Huey that a French artist make the copy, and he explained what he wanted done. There is a large painting at Versailles representing, I believe, the introduction of Lafayette to General Washington. I would like to have the French artist Monsieur Renan see it and tell what he would charge to copy it. If you could go to Versailles with him, I would like it. Perhaps Monsieur Nîmes could also go with you of a Sunday. If he can, I would like it all the better, as he could give me a description of the paintings, and as I have not seen it, the more opinions I have regarding its merits, the better. Of course, all expenses and charge for the journey are to go to my account. Barnum also hoped to make progress on his pet project to have statues made to install around the perimeter of the American Museum's rooftop. A Monsieur Jean had been his contact for this, though he was probably not the actual maker. But since Monsieur Jean could only write to Barnum in French, and Barnum had given up trying to understand his letter, Ouet had to serve as translator and go-between. Barnum appreciated Uwe's efforts to write him a long and interesting letter in English, and commented that if it was half so hard for you to write in English as it is for me to write in French, it must have been a hard job for you. In the same letter, he added, I hope Monsieur Jean will not forget to write about the statues. But thus far, Monsieur Jean was not as concerned about statues as he was that Mr. Sherman, tutor to General Tom Thumb and an antiquarian with an appetite for owning ancient artifacts, pay him for what he had taken. Generally speaking, Barnum had little tolerance for people who failed to pay what they owed or do what they promised. But in the case of Mr. Sherman, he seems to have understood this was part of the man's idiosyncratic nature. Barnum had previously stepped up to pay another of Sherman's debts to Monsieur Jean and thought Monsieur Jean foolish for trusting Sherman again. Barnum told Huey, If Monsieur Jean sends me a bill of particulars against Sherman, I will try to collect it, but I may not succeed. Monsieur Jean did very wrong to trust Mr. Sherman after I had told him his character and had once paid Sherman's bill to save Jean from loss. Sherman has not yet paid me the amount I paid Monsieur Jean for him. However, I think I can collect the other bill for Monsieur Jean if he will send me the list of articles and pieces furnished to Mr. Sherman. I will not show the list to Sherman if I can possibly collect it without doing so. Barnum himself had just been bilked by someone in France, a man who was supposed to be working for him but had taken off with the money instead. 
As he confided to his friend in London, Mr. Collins, I received a letter from France this morning. My friend, possibly Oue, found that all the letters from there pretending sickness, etc., were lies, that they were intended merely to swindle to the amount of 500 francs, and that instead of their author being in Paris, sick as he pretended, he was and is 500 miles from there in good health and enjoying himself in spending the 500 francs. May it do him much good. It is rich, is it not? Barnum remained hopeful that business would be profitable in London, though it was not easy to feel assured of success, as he knew that many things would need to fall into place, and some were out of his control, such as whether Parliament would remain in session and thus keep London busy. He reported to Mr. Collins that business in Aberdeen was good. They were making 70 pounds a day. But that figure would drop significantly in the days to come. Mr. Collins, meanwhile, had included in his letter to Barnum an advertisement for a Spanish dwarf exhibiting in London, so that he would know of the competition that awaited him. Barnum was already aware of an English dwarf exhibiting in London, whom he obliquely mentioned in his own ads as inferior to General Tom Thumb. Barnum assured Collins, We'll try to give the old Spaniard fits, and expanded on the same to Mr. Fillingham, noting, we will try to give the Spanish dwarf and the English Tom Thumb fits. The latter, the English Tom Thumb, was probably Richard Garnsey, who, as Field Marshal Tom Thumb, publicly announced a challenge to the American General Tom Thumb. Barnum does not sound entirely confident in his letter about beating the competition, but on the other hand, he did not hold back in sharing his doubts about Professor Pinta's recent investment in exhibiting a French dwarf. Pinta, you may recall, was a university-educated man and wannabe showman, whom Barnum hired as a translator, with other duties for the Tom Thumb entourage in France. Barnum shared his thoughts with Oue on the matter as follows. Poor Pinta. He will find the dwarf exhibition the poorest speculation he ever engaged in. There are no more Tom Thumbs, and if there were, they could not succeed for the next 20 years. I flatter myself that the harvest has been reaped by the original Tom Thumb, and that his imitators and followers will get poor gleanings. Thanks to Mr. Brattel, another of Barnum's London friends and agents, a space at Egyptian Hall was secured for General Tom Thumb's exhibition and levies, though Barnum had been concerned about the timing. Parliament might break up for a time, which would alter London's entertainment market. He told Brattel, If there is any chance that Parliament will break up, we should not like to be stuck with Egyptian Hall, for in that case, it would be dull enough in London, I expect. If that event is not likely, however, we would like to know as soon as possible what the Waterloo people decide about keeping the room. Brattel had a bead on the London scene, and apparently felt it would remain active, so he went ahead and booked the space with the proprietress, Mrs. Lackington. Writing from Aberdeen, Barnum replied to Brattel with gratitude in his letter of February 4th. Your favor concerning Mrs. Lackington's letter and agreements was duly and thankfully received. I enclose one of the agreements signed and also my check for the first month's rent. I wish Mrs. Lackington to understand that we are, of course, to have the little dressing room and also the upper room, formerly occupied by George Catlin, the same as before. I hope also that she will allow a small transparency, that is, a painted banner, to go over the doorway it shall be small, neat, and respectable. Will you let me know whether the gas fixtures and platform are up in the back room, same as when we had it? 
If so, perhaps we may begin there on the fifth, perhaps, and afterwards remove to the front room. This question about when the front room would be available explains why Barnum told several of his correspondents that Tom Thumb would start either on March 5th or the 9th or 10th. If the Waterloo people decided not to vacate the front room space before the 5th, he would have to decide whether they should wait till the 9th or 10th or begin on the 5th in the back room and then move to the front. The back room had been quite a concern of Barnum's a few months before, as he expressed in his October 31st letter to a Mr. Clark, who knew the proprietress, Mrs. Lackington. He asked Clark to consult her about the availability of space and rental costs, but also added, One thing is very certain, namely, no respectable exhibition will ever open in that back room upstairs until it is renovated, decorated, and put in order. If I owned the Egyptian Hall, I would not allow that room to be seen till it was properly arranged, for its appearance is an injury to the character of the hall. I have several fine exhibitions in from France, which I hope to exhibit in Egyptian Hall before shipping them to America, but too much pains cannot be taken to have the saloons appear neat and respectable. Remodeling must have been addressed over the winter, since Barnum noted to Mr. Collins, The back room upstairs is to be used as a picture gallery. Barnum thus seemed willing to consider the back room as a space to start off in March, if need be. He informed his advertiser, Mr. Sheffield, We have Egyptian Hall engaged from the 5th March to the 10th May. Young Charles Stratton must have been anticipating the return to London with excitement, for it would mean seeing his special pet again. We first get hints about this in the closing sentences of two of Barnum's letters to Sherwood Stratton, written in autumn of 1845 but their meaning remained a bit fuzzy. Barnum fondly referred to Charles as the coon in many of his letters to the boy's father, so it was hard to know if his mention of the monkey coon referred to an animal or the boy's favorite toy, or even if it might have been a nickname for another child who was part of the entourage. Barnum enjoyed assigning funny names. Give my compliments to the coon and the monkey coon and all the rest, he wrote on October 31st. It turns out the monkey coon was indeed a real monkey, and it had traveled with the entourage through France. But when the group returned to London and then decided to do a tour through northern England and Scotland, the monkey had to stay behind. The Collins family stepped up to the plate, or rather, Mrs. Collins did. As Barnum phrased it in his February 6th letter to her husband, The general is rejoiced to hear his monkey as well, but I am not. I always shall feel that it was an imposition to make your wife monkey keeper, even to Tom Thumb. Mrs. Collins may have developed a liking for the monkey while she took care of it, and she certainly knew Charles was very fond of it. Barnum's March 2nd letter to Sherwood Stratton suggests that she looked forward to seeing the boy and his pet reunited. On the return journey from Scotland, the entourage, minus Barnum, had gone to Oxford and then Cambridge to perform, while Barnum continued on to London. Barnum thus wrote to Stratton with details about meeting the family when they arrived from Cambridge. I shall meet you at the railway on Wednesday morning, and Mrs. Collins will also be there. Please let the general have on his best bib and tucker, for Mrs. Collins declares that you must all come to her house and stop an hour. She will have the general's little monkey there to receive him. It is directly on the road from Cambridge Depot to the Great Western Railway. It's fun to imagine Charles's joy at seeing his pet monkey again after the two-month separation. Wouldn't it be great if in some way that scene could have been recorded? I envision Charles all dolled up in his bib and tucker, his face radiating with glee, 
with the monkey perched on his narrow little shoulder. It may have been one of the rare moments in Charles's childhood when he could experience the joy of just being a kid, a kid with his adored pet, forgetting the pressures of his celebrity. We hope you're enjoying the episode. If you want to support us, consider subscribing to our podcast and leaving us a review. It really helps us out. Now, let's dive into the next segment, a correct account of a catastrophe. As we are now into the last 50 pages of Barnum's copybook letters, we want to be alert for details that could help complete the storylines that have taken shape. So this may mean including a bit of hodgepodge in the next episodes, snippets on a variety of topics, but we hope you'll find them no less interesting. In our previous chapter, we surmised that Barnum's friend and agent in Paris, Monsieur Ouet, had informed him that he had been swindled to the tune of 500 francs. That would be approximately 3,330 of today's U.S. dollars. The conman responsible for this had been sending letters saying he was ill, but that was a cover-up, hiding the fact that he wasn't doing the work Barnum had employed him to do. In reality, he had taken off with the money that had been advanced to him. A second person was also involved in the scheme, though perhaps unknowingly. All this was upsetting news, of course, and it seems Barnum mentioned it to his friend in London. In a letter of February 19th to Mr. Collins, Barnum sounds both disappointed and resigned to the loss. Still, he explained to Collins he would hold to the notion that it was preferable to risk being cheated than to deny an honest person in need. His comments in this letter are consistent with views and actions shared in several others about the deserving poor, a concept of charity embraced by many people in the 19th century. Barnum was quite willing to help people who, through no fault of their own, needed money to get by, and would gladly give them cash or help them find employment. But he was firm in his conviction that the needy person should also be industriously working to improve their situation, independent of his help. He replied to Collins, Thank you very much for your remarks on French affairs. I have many times in this world been the victim of misplaced confidence, and expect to be many times more if I live, for I had rather be done by giving to those who do not deserve than to risk the chance of refusing those who do. But when I once find myself swindled, I am pretty careful not to catch a second dose in the same quarter. I still fancy that the first recipient was honest, but shall feel glad to know it if that was not the case. On the subject of helping others, you may recall that Barnum was trying to assist Mr. Collins's stepson, trained as a saddle maker, in finding a job in America. Mr. and Mrs. Collins had sent the young man abroad in order to end a love interest they did not approve of, and Barnum was anxious to help the family, both the son and parents. We now learn that the young man's first name was Emile, surname still unknown as he was from Mrs. Collins's previous marriage, and that he had fallen ill after he arrived in the U.S. That probably explains why he hadn't yet found employment at his trade, nor had Hitchcock employed him at the American Museum or sent him off to the newly acquired museum in Baltimore, as Barnum suggested he could do. Turning to a different topic, it goes without saying that General Tom Thumb's miniature coach and ponies, a gift from Queen Victoria, quickly became an effective brand and marketing tool. Images of the equipage were used on handbills and posters, 
and even on the finely detailed souvenir medals Barnum ordered from a firm in Birmingham, England. Both on stage and on the streets, the actual coach and ponies delighted all, attracting people to attend to the general's performances and thrilling the audiences who saw the equipage in theaters. Charles, being a young boy, had his especial favorite among the ponies, but as we learned from Barnum's letters, that smallest white pony had died while the entourage was traveling between Ayer and Glasgow. Barnum took the pony hide to Martin the Naturalist in Glasgow to have it preserved and then shipped to the American Museum for Monsieur Guillaudot to do his taxidermy magic. Meanwhile, Barnum and Stratton decided to avail themselves of the opportunity to purchase suitably sized ponies while in Scotland. The diminutive yet strong Shetland ponies were ideal for the job. Barnum thus made arrangements to meet with a man in the town of Stirling who had ponies for sale, and perhaps he looked elsewhere as well. As he told Mr. Fillingham in London, I think we shall find no difficulty in getting a pony here, so mine may as well remain at grass. Writing to a Mr. Stewart on February 4th from Aberdeen, Barnum said that General Tom Thumb would be in Stirling on the 14th only, and that Mr. Stratton, the general's father, will then be happy to see the ponies you spoke to him about when we were in Dundee. Nearly two weeks later, on February 17th, Barnum wrote to Phil once again, this time with instructions regarding three ponies he had shipped. I have sent a pony, black, to you by the Dundee and London steamer, which leaves Dundee tomorrow Wednesday and arrives in London Friday night. I have also given the captain a check on you for 11 pounds, besides the usual freight of a pony, whatever that is. The pony was to have been delivered to me on board the steamer at Dundee for the 11 pounds. Stratton also sends you a pair of ponies, cream color, by the Edinburgh and London steamer, which leaves Leith tomorrow, Wednesday morning. Nothing to pay on them. Please take care of the ponies. Barnum seems to have been in a buying mood while in Stirling, because after visiting the ancient castle with its splendid Tudor-era carved portraits, he decided to purchase plaster copies of the large oak medallions. The plaster copies had been painted to appear like wood, as Barnum told Hitchcock, and Barnum wanted to display them in his museum, bringing history to his American audience. Apparently, he had at least two options for buying copies, as he wrote to a Mr. John Waddell R.A. at Stirling Castle to say, I purchased the models from the postmaster at Stirling on Saturday last, and therefore shall not want those which you were so kind as to offer me. Alas, the ones he did purchase still had not been sent a few days later, and he wrote with annoyance to the seller on February 21st, I am very much surprised and annoyed at not having received the cask of model casts which I purchased from you when I was in Stirling with General Tom Thumb. Please forward them immediately, directed to me at George Hotel, St. George Square, Glasgow. Barnum expected to reach Glasgow on Sunday, February 15th. His agent there, Mr. Miller, had been dutifully keeping him abreast of progress with the fat children, whom Barnum planned to send to America in early April. Barnum sent a brief note to Miller on the 13th to thank him for his letters, adding a postscript that he hoped the fat child who had been ill was getting better. Little did Barnum know at the time that a bigger headache was about to occur, an accident in Airdrie on the evening of February 16, 1846. Thus far, we have only pieced together what happened from rather brief references to the accident in Barnum's letters. Now we have a more detailed account that Barnum composed for the London papers to publish. This account is included among the out-of-sequence February letters. 
Barnum penned three drafts, with slight modifications and additions to the second and third versions. Presumably, it was the third version that he sent to Mr. Brutel in London when he wrote to him the day after the accident. I enclose you a correct account of the catastrophe which occurred here last night. Will you please hand it to the Globe with assurance that it is correct in every particular, and with a request that the editor will insert the gist of it, of course adopting his own language, as I do not pretend to be capable of using the proper language for a public journal. I am thankful, most thankful, to say that we all escaped injury except the General's mother and Mr. Payne, father to the little footman, the first of whom was slightly and the latter seriously bruised. Copied here is Barnum's third version, the last sentence being the most significant addition to the first two drafts. Interestingly, a detail not included in his account, but mentioned in a letter to Mr. Collins, was that the space into which people fell was a tin shop located below the trade hall's main floor. Serious accident and narrow escape of General Tom Thumb. During one of the public levies of the renowned General Tom Thumb in the trades hall at Airdrie on Monday night last, a large portion of the floor gave way with an awful crash and precipitated some 300 men, women, and children into the room below, a distance of 14 feet. The scene of confusion and excitement, mingled with the groans and screechings of the suffering and affrighted multitude, can scarcely be imagined. About 1,000 persons were in the hall, but fortunately, and strange to say, no death was occasioned by the accident. One man, Mr. William Harley, lamplighter to the town, had a leg broken, and several other persons, including some of the general's suite, were bruised. That portion of the floor which fell was the precise spot where the general gave his performances, and which the little fellow had left only two minutes before, and had gone into an adjoining room to change his costume. The table on which he exhibited fell with the multitude, and was crushed to atoms, and the little general must inevitably have been killed, had he not providentially left the room a couple of minutes before, for the purpose above indicated. On examination of the ruins, it was found that the building was quite unfit for the purpose for which it was erected, the joists of the floor being far apart and consisting of two-inch scantlings of yellow pine, a fact which the proprietor ought to have known, but of which the little general, being a stranger, was of course ignorant. We opine that General Thumb, lightweight as he is, will not trust himself or his patrons in another hall without first learning that it is substantially built. We are happy to add that the general took immediate steps for alleviating in a pecuniary point of view such poor persons as were injured, and to whom a loss of time would prove a serious inconvenience. Since Barnum himself had been a newspaper man for three years, his comment to Brutel that he did not pretend to be capable of using the proper language for a public journal is curious. Perhaps he was simply being polite, indicating deference to the Globe's editor. In any case, his account was certainly crafted with an eye to stirring the emotions of readers, while also building General Tom Thumb's brand as a fair-minded and generous soul, a little person with a big heart. Thank you for listening to this episode of Becoming Barnum, The Journey to Fame and Fortune. Support for this episode is provided by the City of Bridgeport American Rescue Plan Act Funds, Peoples United, a division of M&T Bank, and the Connecticut Humanities and National Endowment for the Humanities. 
The podcast was produced by the Barnum Museum and based on the blog series Barnum's Letters from Abroad by Adrian St. Pierre. Editing and sound design are by Rui Pinna, and narration is by William Saris. Kathleen Marr is our executive director, and John Swing is our COO. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and visit our YouTube channel for behind-the-scenes presentations of our collections and more stories about the legendary showman. Connect with us on social media and let us know what you think. Please tune in next time as we continue our adventures with P.T. Barnum.